Amen. Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 42, where we'll focus our attention, at least in part, this morning. As we turn our attention to the subject of depression in our All the Feels sermon series. We'll begin the final topic this morning. We won't complete it, but we'll begin it this morning. And I've been so thankful for all of the feedback on so many of the sermons, especially the guys on Sunday nights, as they've uh, given us the truth of God and how it affects our life and how it can help and change our emotions. And we'll continue that again tonight. Pastor Hadley finishing out our Sunday nights uh, with uh, just a biblical understanding of grief and how to deal with that. So that'll be a, a special evening for all of us. But this morning, we're going to look at the emotion or the feeling or the life-dominating diagnosis of depression. And to begin, I'd like to allow for a guest speaker to speak to us this morning. If you've read or heard of John Bunyan, you know he's a man very familiar with depression. Bunyan is, you know, a man acquainted with difficulty, distressed by the hardships of incarceration, and scarred by the terror of war and combat, moved often with the extreme emotion that befalls us when life and death circumstances are constantly around us, struggling with the suffering of himself and his family and those around him and his church and especially his blind daughter, Mary, that he watched pass away. And Bunyan, like many of you, was tormented at various times by depression. Bunyan was a man who felt things deeply and yet was preeminent in his ability to express his feelings. Bunyan's official autobiography, Grace Abounding, it's a beautiful and rich read of the tender and wonderful mercies of God's grace to a sinner. And there's a lot to draw from in that book, uh, from his words about his struggles with spiritual darkness. But I rather enjoy his unofficial autobiography, Pilgrim's Progress. If I didn't think I'd get in trouble, I'd quote it every week. There's always something in Pilgrim's Progress that applies to our walk with the Lord. But a sermon on depression that doesn't pay homage to the giant despair from Pilgrim's Progress is a puny effort in my opinion. Bunyan didn't hide the similarities between his life and his personal journey as a believer and Christian's march towards the celestial city. Near the midpoint of Christian's journey, well after Christian deposited his burden at the cross and confessed his allegiance to the king of the celestial city, we find Christian and hopeful encounter one of the story's most infamous villains, a villain that's so famous they even appeared, he even appeared at our VBS this summer. Giant despair. And note despair in Bunyan's, in Bunyan's vocabulary matches our terminology of depression. Despair is depression to Bunyan. Christian and his companion Hopeful, who've been through a lot together, remember they've already been through Vanity Fair and seen the martyrdom of, of faithful, they found themselves lost in Bypath Meadow. Instead of following the narrow way, they detour, and they get lost. They fall headlong into the hands of giant despair, who holds them captive in Doubting Castle. Vivid pictures Bunyan paints with his allegory. Read along as giant despair wakes Christian and hopeful, and you can feel how Bunyan experiences depression. The giant got up early the next morning. And walking up and down his grounds, he spotted Christian and Hopeful sleeping there. And then with a fierce and threatening voice, he woke them up and demanded where they had come from and what they were doing on his property. Christian and Hopeful answered shakily that they were pilgrims and that they'd lost their way. The giant said, you have committed an offense against me by trampling in and lying on my property last night. Therefore, you must come with me. Isn't that depression? Lose your way, and unbeknownst to you, you find yourself taken captive by a giant you can't overcome that shows you no mercy. There's no choice. There's no options. There's no fighting back. Remember, Christian fought valiantly against the dragon, Apollyon, but he knuckles under without protest to giant depression. Christian and Hopeful know they had trespassed, and to a degree they felt they even deserved what was coming to them. Giant depression or giant despair sees them 
And then we read, the giant forced them to walk in front of him until they reached the castle. And there he threw them into a very dark dungeon without any light, which to the two men found disgustingly foul and smelly. They lay there from Wednesday morning until Saturday night without even a crumb of bread. Christian felt doubly sorrowful because it was his ill-advised haste that had brought them into this distress. Bunyan weaves into his allegory the characteristic lack of appetite and the patent inability to see beyond the moment that people struggling with depression, being captive to giant despair, so often feel. Everything around them seems dark, pointless, foul, and smelly, hopeless. Bunyan went on to describe how the giant who's egged on by his wife diffidence, a term that reminds us of the erosion of their faith, diffidence would encourage her husband, giant despair, to assault his prisoners. Depression is no passive captor, no apathetic captor. Giant despair would come down to the dungeon and without the slightest provocation beat Christian and hopeful without mercy. Between beatings, the men would helplessly lie on the floor, immobilized by their depression, with barely enough strength to even grieve their miserable condition. And then tragically, and probably appropriately according to reality, the giant went down to his captors with a knife, a rope, and some poison, and he advised them to kill themselves. Giant depression says, you choose which means of death you prefer. Why should you choose life, seeing that it involves so much bitterness and pain? See, that was Bunyan's battle, a life or death battle with the turmoil and terror of depression. Before true conversion, Bunyan would stand below or beneath a church bell in his little church in the chapel in Bedford and He would stand below this church bell that he knew was big enough to crush him, and he would beg God to let the church bell fall on him because he didn't know if he was saved or not. And if he wasn't saved, he didn't want to live. Such is the experience of a person who's severely depressed. The only way out that seems possible is too often death. Depression is an awful foe. It truly is a giant of despair. And that giant seems undefeatable. And because of Bunyan's vivid accounts of his wrestling with depression and his excellent skills in describing his emotions in his works, he's earned many posthumous diagnoses of mental illnesses, which I think is interesting. But in so much of Bunyan, reading him, I would suggest his um, most impressive characteristic is honesty. He's honest. He tells us how he felt, tells us what he experienced. Was he depressed at times? Absolutely he was. Did he see God deliver him? Absolutely he did. Did he see God deliver him when he wanted? Never. And friend, as we consider depression today, I know it's something that some of you are always dealing with. It's also something that some of you never deal with. And some of you swing in and out of depression as consistently as the moon changes its phases. But for all of us, we have to believe by faith that Jesus and his work, if his work has saved us, then his work is sanctifying us. And because his work is sanctifying us, we have hope that his work will glorify us. We have hope, not because of an allegory, not because of our circumstances, not because of a preacher, not because of a sermon, not because of a good book to read or a friend to pray for us. We have hope because of Jesus and his death on our behalf and God's resurrection. Our hope is in a power that's beyond ourselves. No matter how large the giant despair looms in our life, no matter how strong the walls of our own doubting castle, we have hope. But how do we find that hope? Many of you have felt the life that says there is no hope. You've Woken up in the dungeon realizing you have nothing to get you out. I hope today that we will recognize how to foster hope in the midst of depression. How do we see the light in the seasons of spiritual darkness? I hope today that we'll be equipped as God's people to point one another to God and see his bright grace and mercy. 
I hope today for those of you who feel like you're alone in this battle of depression that you'll hear that you're not alone. And your brothers and sisters will be equipped to pray for you, to come alongside of you, and to help you as we seek to live for the promises of God together. And I hope for all of us that we'll be reminded that this world, this life, these circumstances, they matter. They matter eternally. But at the same time, this life is not eternal. This life is the dress rehearsal for forever. We have hope. It's always coming. Our future with Christ is secured. Our life with him is eternally guaranteed. So friend, hold on. Hold on to his promises and trust that he's coming back for us. And when you struggle and you find your soul crushed beneath the sorrows of this life, turn to his word. See that you're not alone. Long for his help. And when you need help, not if, but when, look around. Find brothers and sisters willing and ready to come alongside of you and point you to him. And as we begin, please stand with me and we'll read Psalm 42. Psalm 42, which really is the first part of what we read, Psalm 43. These psalms are likely just one psalm a long time ago, but Psalm 42 is what we'll read together. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray together. Father, help us this morning. Give us your grace, your spirit to understand. Help us to turn to your word and find the help that we need. Give us humility with ourselves. Give us patience with each other. This passion for our Savior. Help us to see with eyes that are not earthly. Help us to long for the horizon that we can't touch. Help us to be a people who care deeply about one another, love tenderly each other, recognize suffering come alongside those who weep and weep with them. But help us to have hope, not hope in each other, not hope in our work, not hope in what we know, but hope in the one who knows us. Help us to find you as our only hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. John Piper says that in addressing the topic of depression, he is aware that he has put his oar in a very large sea. (laughs) Yeah, I feel that. So what is depression exactly? If we were to define the term depression, it's about impossible. But we do find a reasonable agreement with how the world often defines depression. According to the latest DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, to be diagnosed with depression, you must experience five or more of these symptoms during the same two-week period. Depressed mood most of the day, markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or most activities, 
significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain, a slow down of thought and a reduction of physical movement, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day, feelings of worthlessness or excessive inappropriate guilt, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness, recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or attempts, etc. Some of you look at this list and, and you think, wow, I cannot imagine living like that. Some of you look at this list and you say, that's me. Some of you look at this list and say, that's Monday to Thursday every week. <laughs> depression is truly a, it's a catch-all term. What is depression? It's despondency, it's dejection, it's unhappiness, it's sadness, it's despair, it's doom, it's bereavement, it's grief, it's dissatisfaction, it's discouragement, disappointment. All these emotions can lead to the feeling we call depression. Depression is one of the broadest terms in the English language, I'm convinced. And like many broad terms, when it's used broadly, the clarity of what it means is diminished. When we use it flippantly, it's even more so. Occasionally, depression is a flippant remark. Like Sometimes things are called depressing, like paying your electric bill in August. You know, wow, you pay that electric bill, that's depressing, you know. Is that my mortgage or my electric bill? And it's funny, and except for at the same time, there's other people that their life is so depressing that they want to end it. So which one's depressing? We have to be careful how we define the word depression. The feeling of depression is a life-dominating, soul-crushing emotion that leads people to believe that death is better than life. That's the end of depression. And as we begin to interact with someone suffering from depression, we have to ask, what is depression? What do you mean by depression? What's going on in your life that, call, that, that leads you to call yourself depressed? And if we're claiming to be depressed, don't, don't fear someone asking you what exactly does that mean. We should be ready to explain what the term means in our case because it's so varied from person to person. But how would the Bible define depression? In many ways, very similar to how the world defines depression, but we need much more nuance. First, no matter how debilitating, no matter how connected to the physical, depression, we have to see, is an emotion. Remember, emotions are essential parts of our humanity. And they're essential to our humanity because we are created in God's image, and our emotions are designed by God to benefit us and to allow us to worship God in the fullness of our being. Emotions are the expression of our values. Emotions are the result of our evaluations of our circumstances. Emotions influence what we do and why we do it. And when we look at emotions biblically, we're seeing that they're more than biologically charged feelings. Instead, emotions are reflecting or displaying our values. Emotions betray what we really believe about certain things. And emotions are, are given by God as a tool for us. When rightly informed and influenced, they, they push us towards godliness and they push us towards worship. In many senses, the emotion of depression is no different. If you think your life is pointless, if you think your circumstances are awful, and you think God has abandoned you, and you believe that you are alone, and you know in your mind that God cannot nor will he forgive you for your past, if those are the truths that you believe, then the response of depression is not a broken emotion. You should be depressed if those are the things that you believe to be true. But for the believer, the Bible corrects those truths and over time seeks to correct our depression, pointing us towards the truth of what God has done for us, helping our emotions reflect the truth of who God is and what God has done within us. So is defining depression complicated? Yeah, it is. Absolutely it is. In part because depression is not a biblical word. That doesn't mean it's bad. It's just not a biblical word. Imagine Epaphroditus. He was not depressed by missing others. Instead, he was distressed in Philippians 2.26. Jesus was not depressed in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he was distressed and troubled in Mark 14, 33. Those healed by God are not depressed, but brokenhearted in Psalm 147, verse 3. 
So depression is a hard word to define biblically because it's an aisle word and not an item word. You know what I mean by that? Have you ever been to Dylan's? They have aisles of stuff, you know? And say you need a spice. Well, we can get you to the spice aisle, but that's not going to help you find what you need. And if you say, I need a spice, and I grab you coriander, but you needed cumin, you're not going to be happy. If you want curry and I give you cinnamon, it's not going to help. Well, depression is the aisle. How things come about are the actual items. We need item words. Depression is a monster category. But if we allow the language of the Bible to rule over the language of our culture, we'll see that depression is diagnosed and cared for and helped and even cured in God's word. Depression in God's word is not limited to the soul. Oftentimes this is how the Bible is looked down upon. Well, the Bible doesn't address the truth of what depression is. Well, oftentimes the heartache or sorrow of our Savior is said to upset his bowels by John in his gospel. It's a whole body experience. The Proverbs talk extensively about the connection between body and soul. Absolutely, it extends to heartache. Depression is a whole being, being bereaved and unable to escape it. Depression in the Bible is sorrow that dominates and pain that eliminates hope. Depression is heartache on loop. For some of you, your sorrow has become your only real feeling. That's depression. I want to help you today and next week. And if this is not something you ever struggle with, then I'm hopefully going to help you help others understand and pursue the Lord even in depression. We can probably combine second and third groups up here, examine the struggle and evaluate the remedies. We can put these uh, together. Where does depression come from according to the world and how can we deal with it? Here's where we really begin to have our major disagreements with the worldly philosophy of depression. If you remember my first sermon in this series, then you get a gold star, but if you forgot it, that's okay. Hopefully you heard the Bible's authority even over emotions. Just because they're emotions doesn't mean the Bible doesn't have authority over them. Our emotions are not purely physiological responses. Our emotions are not simply the product of different levels of brain juices mixing together. And depression is not merely a physical issue or a problem of the brain disconnected from a responsibility in the soul. You have a responsibility with your emotions. Are emotions physical? In part, absolutely. Often they are. How about depression? Is depression physical? In part, absolutely, often. Depression is not merely a physical issue or a problem of the brain disconnected from a responsibility in the soul. So does that remove culpability from the believer to pursue righteousness in depression? Does that remove responsibility from the believer to, to worship God even in depression? Well, it cannot. The world will tell you that your biology or your environment has made you this way and there's nothing that you can fundamentally do to change it. You can do things like try a better diet, add exercise to your life, change your circumstances, practice better self-care, and maybe you can decrease your depression. The Bible wouldn't disagree with any of those things. But this is where the world and the Bible would fundamentally disagree because the Bible demands that we not only address those things, but we address the heart. And this is where medication for depression becomes such an issue. Where, where would the Bible say our depression comes from? The Bible would say it comes from the curse. The Bible would say it comes from sin. The Bible would say it comes from satanic attack. It comes through adverse circumstances. It comes through disease. It comes from physical conditions. It comes from believing lies. Medication at its best can only partly and partially help with a few of those underlying factors or symptoms, but it can't cure any of them. Yet the modern medicine community has convinced many Christians that depression is almost entirely about a chemical imbalance. Maybe you sense and have sensed my lack of faith in the chemical imbalance theory. It is a theory. May, 20, May 7th of 2002, the Washington Post, this is not my go-to for medical advice, by the way, but they ran an interesting piece. The article was titled, Against Depression, a Sugar Pill is Hard to Beat. 
I would classify the article as depressing because it shows that the utter dependency of America and of Americans in so many cases is misplaced on prescription drugs. You can Google the article in its entirety. You can find it there. It's on the interwebs for free, but this is how it begins. After thousands of studies and hundreds of millions of prescriptions, I don't even know what that number means, hundreds of millions of prescriptions. That's, their, that's what they say. And tens of billions of dollars in sales, two things are certain about pills that treat depression. Antidepressants like Prozac, Paxil, and Zoloft work. And so do sugar pills. A new analysis, this is old news, 2002, a new analysis has found that in the majority of trials conducted by companies, drug companies in recent decades, sugar pills have done as well as or better than antidepressants. What's more, the sugar pills or placebos cause profound changes in the same areas of the brain affected by the medicines, according to research published last week. One researcher has ruefully concluded that a higher percentage of depressed patients get better on placebos today than 20 years ago. It's a really fascinating article, and it points to the reality of how belief changes us as much as these pills. But consider Prozac. Do you know what's changed since 2002 with Prozac and its cousins? Nothing. Medication hasn't, can't, and won't fix depression. I understand some of you heartily disagree, but you can't fix a spiritual problem that has physical components without addressing the heart. Maybe you want to ask, is depression physical? Ask a mom who's struggling through postpartum depression. Absolutely, depression is physical. You take away her sleep, you throw in a mix of hormones, you take a baby out of her, you add a few pounds to her hips, that's a recipe for a sorrow that will not lift. But what does she need? What does she need? She needs truth. She needs truth that this little soul is an eternal reflection of the glory of God. She needs reminded that her sacrifice of normalcy, that her sacrifice of her body's comfort and her body's shape is a worship to her Savior. She needs told how beautiful it is what her body has done, how amazing God's creation is, and how splendid her role is in forming a new human that's seen by God to glorify Him forever. She needs reminded that God blessed her to be an agent of His glory and bringing something new that will last for eternity. And she needs a patient husband who will love her and learn with her how the curse has affected her so he can lead her continually to Christ, even in her depression. Many things in our body produce symptoms of depression. Some diseases like Parkinson's go hand in hand with heavy, prolonged sorrow. What is that? Depression. Physical? Absolutely. Spiritual? Absolutely. How can it not be? A medication that alters our mind to produce a favorable feeling or emotion can be short-circuiting the process of growth and sanctification God offers through His Spirit and His Word. A world unconcerned with our souls, growing in conformity to Christ, is unhindered in pursuing medication. But for believers... We should be very careful, very careful, even considering medication to do what God says happens through sanctification. In a few minutes and all of next week, I'm going to give you some practical and tangible ways we can address depression as believers and how we can pursue righteousness even in depression. But the one thing that you're going to want to fight me over is medication. So how about it? Can believers use drugs to fight depression? I appreciate this quote from John Piper. He says, By itself, medicine is never a solution to spiritual darkness. I think the Bible would agree with that. When you're in spiritual darkness, heartache, sorrow, brokenhearted, seasons of trials, prolonged testing, compounded with physical ailments, by itself, medicine is never a solution to spiritual darkness. Let me say medication for a condition that affects your soul is a sensitive, complex, and non-uniform issue. It will not 
it cannot and it must not be the same for everyone because nobody is the same. In part because everyone feels things differently. Let me also say, if you're on medication for depression, please don't hear something I'm not saying. I'm not saying you're in sin. I'm not saying you must get off at all cost. I'm definitely not saying you should get off without talking to the person who put you on it. I am saying drugs or medication designed to change our emotion. Our emotions are a liberty and a conscience issue. They're to be handled with extreme care because of our, how our testimony about the effects of the gospel and the beauty of our Savior are at stake. And as with any liberty and any conscience issue, there are some who are able and there are some for whom it would be a sin. So be careful about blanket statements either way about medication and depression. But what does it mean to be careful in considering medication? Well, here's some questions you can ask yourself to help you be careful. One, ask yourself, is it wrong? Am I using medication and not pursuing the Lord? That's sinful. doesn't matter what you're using. If you're using donut holes and not pursuing the Lord, that's sinful. You have to pursue the Lord. Am I using medication and not pursuing the Lord? Am I trying to get what God promises without what God requires? That's lazy and wrong. So the first question, ask yourself, is it wrong? Am I using medication and not pursuing the Lord? Second, ask yourself, is it helpful? Is it helpful? Studies show half of those on these medications are getting nothing but the side effects. Is it helpful? Can you? Maybe. Should you? That's a good question. Is it helpful? Is this wise? Is this causing you to worship God and trust Him more? Or is it offering earthly and temporal security at the expense of losing your dependency on God? Do you depend on medication so you don't have to depend on God? Say, that's a hard question. Yeah, it is. Very hard. Is it the same for everyone? Nope. Is it helpful? Third question is, is it necessary? Does your depression annoy you? Or does it cause others around you to fear for your life? Those are two very different things. Does your depression slow you down? Or do you fear it'll take you out? Those are two very different things. When you add the medication to your life, are you able to make more of Christ in your life? Is it necessary? Those are just three questions the believers should ask, and they'll take a long time to answer. In our culture that is very pro-medication, in our Christian culture that is the same, we've become very comfortable with life-altering mind-bending drugs and we're okay with how common they are even in the church we should be careful you shouldn't partake of liberties without asking questions like these i don't have the answers to these questions for you but any of the shepherds would love to try and help you think through these questions in your own life for you if you need help ask this is in no way a condemnation of anyone who's on any medication that they're afraid of it's, it's okay to ask. You're not in trouble. I want you to pursue the Lord. I want you to know him more fully and clearly. And sometimes that means struggling through difficulty. So could it be okay to pursue a liberty like med medication? It sure could. Is it okay to abuse a liberty like medication? Never. It's just similar to alcohol. Can it be fine? It can. But just like alcohol, we can't allow medication to take over control of our soul. Remember what Paul says in the context of walking worthy of the gospel, walking in light as children of God. Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What does Paul contrast there? Being controlled by a substance versus being controlled by the Spirit. Christian, is it not appropriate to ask, if you're on medication, what controls you? That's a question I can't answer, but it's a question you must. You have to be able to answer that question. Be careful with medication. Fourth, I've never liked consequences, so we'll skip that one. Fifth, pursue godly growth in your pride. 
it comes up in other places. So, fifth, pursue godly growth in your pride. Before I get to the line items here, recognize that we as a body have a responsibility to each other. Why am I telling you these things? Why are some of you sweating? Like, I see it, you're just sweating. Like, oh no, I can't believe he's saying this. Uh, I'm going to stand before the Lord for you. And you know what? You're going to stand the Lord for me. Romans 12, 5, we're what? We're each members one of another. Don't like that? Go to another church. We have to be accountable for each other. We have to work through these things. If you've never struggled with depression and you're thinking, oh no, everybody's going to know and I can't say anything, you're not listening to me. Come ask for help. Get help. I'm, last thing I'm going to do is ask you about your medication. Literally. I, it's, anyway, if you constantly struggle with depression, don't think God's system is broken. Engage. There's hope. But you have to engage with what God offers. So what can you do to pursue godly growth in depression? How can you direct those who are struggling with sorrow and finding no hope? Well, the first thing you can do is preach the truth to yourself. Preach truth to yourself. We began by reading Psalm 43 uh, or Psalm 42 or whatever we did. They're both the same psalm in essence. In both of these psalms, what's the psalmist doing? Why are you downcast, Psalm 42, verse 5? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? What is that? That sure seems like an expression of depression. This is a struggle. Is it a season? Is it a lifelong? Does, that doesn't matter. It's an expression of depression. And then he says what? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What's he doing? He's preaching to himself. We must learn to preach the truth to ourselves. The psalmist is in a trial. He remembered the beauty of the past and the privilege of Israel, the wonder of what God had done for her, setting her on the crossroads of all the known world, the fertile crescent. Everybody had to go through her. She was beautiful, amazing, rich, and powerful, and here she is struggling. And the psalmist is like, this is a mess. He felt the suffering of the present. He didn't see hope for the future. He describes his soul, Psalm 42, verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. Verse 9, chapter 42, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. What is that? That sounds like depression. That's sorrow that will not lift. That's emotions that are all burdened. Feelings that are too dull to enjoy even what we know is good. And what's the solution? What's the psalmist do? Does he tell God that God has to change? What's he say? Psalm 43, verse 5, he preaches truth to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I love Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote a book on spiritual depression. And as a former medical doctor, he was always concerned with the interplay between body and soul, that connection, and our responsibility to pursue sanctification. And he uses Psalm 42 and 3 in his book. I'll quote him. He says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment, he's talking about Psalm 42, was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. It's the page numbers if you want to look at his book. Friends, at, night, at times, we need to talk to ourselves and not just talk to ourselves. We need to preach to ourselves. We need to tell ourselves to sit down and listen. Stop talking and listen and let God's truth preach to us. Self needs to stop talking. Self needs to be preached at. And when you have the truth that you need, who's a better preacher for yourself than you? 
Second, hope in God and not yourself. Hope in God and not yourself. Turn to Psalm 130 and you'll find a beautiful psalm of total dependence on the Lord. Psalm 130. There's elements of depression often that fight against God's total control. There's a crying out to God, but not a giving of oneself over completely and entirely to God. We want to help ourselves somehow. We beg God for help, but we want his help in the way that we desire, not in the way that he pleases. There's a fight for control. There's a, a fight to hope in God and self. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Let me, let me translate that for you. The psalmist says, I got nothing. I have nothing. When we're depressed, we know that we have nothing. But do we? Only do we hope in God? Or do we hope in God and? The psalmist says, I got nothing. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. When the hallways of our minds are littered with the echoes of self-help, we're not able to hear the beauty of God's offer. Not only can you not help yourself, God doesn't need your help. God is your help. When we hope in God and not ourself and God, we find God is worthy to wait on. And in waiting on him, he is our hope. And in hoping in him, he relieves the burden that we cannot bear in the beginning, thinking we can help ourselves. Psalm chapter 7, verse 1, O oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Too often we rework that verse and say, O oh Lord my God, when things are good, I take refuge in you. But when, when there's a problem, I can help myself. When do you need a refuge? When there's a problem. Where should your refuge be? Only in the Lord. Hope in God, friend, and not yourself. Third, identify the truth in your depression and mortify the lies. Occasionally, there's truths that lead to depression. Maybe you lost a spouse to a horrible disease. Maybe you lost a child to a foolish accident. Maybe there's an injustice committed against you. Maybe you were the victim of abuse. Maybe you lost a friend because they turned to sin away from Christ. Sometimes we must recognize that what is grieving our hearts grieves God's heart. And the burden of our circumstances is a product of the curse. And the curse that God hated to give, but he hated sin more. The curse was a product of sin. The curse was a punishment for sin. And the only solution to the curse and to sin was his son dying to redeem his creation to save sinners. Think about what's happening. You're depressed over evil. God crushed his son because of it. Sometimes what causes our depression is what motivated our creator to take action and to send his son to save sinners. Sometimes our depression reflects God's view of our situation. There's truth in the suffering of this life. Sometimes what causes our struggle is what motivated our Savior to take action and send His Son to save us, to give us the promise that one day all injustice will be reversed and every crime will be punished. You don't have the burden of being the one who mourns evil. God mourns the evil, but God takes action against the evil. You don't have to fear injustice will go unpunished. It will not. God is in control. His son will be worshiped. Evil will be corrected. Righteousness will one day rule. There may be truths in your depression. Consider them, but consider the end of them. You are not the end of them. That is often where the lies come. You don't have to set things right. You can't set things right. You don't even have to see things set right. You don't have to fear that the wicked will go free. God has promised and His holiness demands every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the King and His kingdom will come and everything will be made right. 
You can wait. Jesus says you can. Fourth, read the gospel truths. Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. They feed your soul. They put words to your emotions. They're good. But it's silly to read only the Psalms. To read only the Psalms is to miss what all the psalmists were looking forward to. The psalmists were longing for who? The Son of David, the Messiah, the Lamb, to come. And He's come. And we have all that we need to know about Him. So don't just read the Psalms. Read Jesus in the Gospels. Look at Jesus, who He was, what He did, how He responded, how He loved and cherished and cared for the brokenhearted. See His care for people. And know his care for you. But don't stop in the Gospels. Hammer the epistles into your soul. Read Romans chapter 8 honestly. Do you think that's about the good life getting better? It's not. It's about the struggles and terror of depression. And the reality that even in them we're more than conquerors. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. And we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the worst life has to offer. And Paul says, because Jesus is baked into the recipe, we have hope that not only now, but forever will be more than conquerors. In the yucky, ugly of this life, those things that cause us to go down the road of depression, Paul says, we're more than conquerors. Your mind lies to you. Read gospel truth. Fifth, tether your soul to the gospel, to the real, pure, life-giving good news. Don't you dare think because you've lived a few years as a Christian that you've graduated out of the camp of the gospel. Like all of a sudden, I need more and higher and special truths. The gospel is so known to me, I've moved on. That's foolish. You will never exhaust the beauty of the gospel. Memorize gospel passages. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. Memorize all of it. Get it all in your mind. When you see a license plate with a number 2, you should think Ephesians chapter 2 because it's always coming out of your mind. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Get those verses stuck in your mind to where when somebody says, how are you doing? You're like, well, let me tell you. Used to be disobedient and a slave to unrighteousness, but now God saved me. I'm doing pretty good. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Who, who's, who's the one that used to be in the domain of darkness but has been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son? It should be you. If you're saying you're depressed and you don't know these verses, pay attention. Put these verses in your mind. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. What did Jesus come to do? Save you. Let your mind put the gospel truth playlist on repeat, just constantly going. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14 should ring in your ears when you struggle with sorrow. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jam these truths in your mind so you can feel your soul drift towards the beauty of your coming blessed hope. Long for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tether your soul to the gospel. There is nothing more hopeful than the good news. You will never find a book on depression that will be as powerful as the good news of the gospel. With the Bible, you have what you need. I think we'll, or I know we'll save the next several for next week, 6 to 19. I hope we'll get through them. But I do feel bad about leaving Christian and hopeful in the dungeon of Doubting Castle under the rule of giant despair. Do you remember how they were set free? Was there a rescue? Was there an opening in the wall that they didn't see? Did they figure it out? Well, read along. The story continues like this. Well, on Saturday, Bunyan says, four days of captivity. About midnight, they began to pray and continue in prayer till almost break of day. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, uh, this is like the, one of the best parts of the whole book. Good Christian. 
as one half amazed, break out in a passionate speech. What a fool, quoth he, am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise, that will, I am persuaded, open any lock and doubting castle. Then said hopeful, that's good news. Good brother, pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease, and Christian and Hopeful both came out. If you've read the story, their journey's far from over. But Christian and Hopeful escaped giant depression with the key. Which key? The key of promise? The key Christian had, the truth of the gospel, the promises of God, they were reminded of by prayer. Don't give up, friend. Trust what God has done. Trust he will deliver. Trust you have all you need. That's what Peter tells us as we close 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. God's divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We have hope, friend. You have hope, friend. No matter the walls of your dungeon, no matter the strength of your giant depression, you have hope if you have the key of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us today have hope from outside of ourselves to trust in you, to seek you, to allow the beauty of what Christ has done to save us from our sin, to be enough for us. Father, for those that are bound and struggling and crushed under the weight of sorrow. Help them know this church loves them, that you love them, your son loves them, their brothers and sisters love them. We want to help them. Help us to be a family, a family who makes much of our Savior and head, our God and our King, and loves each other well with truth and grace and love. Help us to do all this for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.